0: Radio Parallax starts off today's program wishing a happy birthday to the Periodic Table of the Elements. It was, in fact, 150 years ago, in 1869, that a Russian scientist named Dmitry Mendeleev first proposed, in a form that we could now recognize today, a prototype version of the Periodic Table. We think it is a very interesting story and we're going to devote the second half of today's program to talk about the periodic table of the elements. It's not the first time we've broached that subject. We would refer you to our archives for our we refer you to our archives for our fascinating talk with Sam Keane about his national bestseller The Disappearing Spoon and other true tales of madness, love and the history of the world from The Periodic Table of the Elements. And no, do not expect a dry discussion to follow. Here's an excerpt from what The Economist had to say about this subject. Albert Einstein, dapper in his youth, cultivated a waywardness of appearance in old age that has contributed to the trope of the mad professor. Dmitry Mendeleev looked like that from the beginning, having his hair cut just once a year by a shepherd using wool shears. He also behaved like a mad professor. He was prone to dancing rages that put one biographer in mind of the protagonist of Rumpelstiltskin. Also, like Rumpelstiltskin, he proved, metaphorically at least, to be able to spin straw into gold. But Let us more properly begin our first segment today with a quote. Something we like to do. This one comes from Mark Twain. We used it before, but it's worth using again. Said Samuel Clemens, The man who doesn't read good books has no advantage over the man who can't read them. Another quote or quip I'd like to paraphrase is that the news consists of informing the public that Lord Jones is dead, even if they didn't know Lord Jones was alive. Thus as we must inform you of the passing of Betty Ballantyne, even though we ourselves really didn't ever know that Betty Ballantyne was alive. But as avowed advocates of reading on this program, we think that Betty's obit is worth a brief mention. Said The Week magazine, Newlyweds Betty and Ian Ballantyne sailed to New York in 1939, intent upon changing the way Americans consumed books. Inspired by the success of Penguin paperbacks in England, the Ballantynes decided they'd use a $500 wedding gift to establish the imprint's U.S. division. At that time, hardcovers often cost $3, equivalent to about 45 bucks today, and paperbacks were associated with pulp. The Ballantines changed that by acquiring the rights to British classics, starting with H.G. Wells as The Invisible Man and P.G. Woodhouse's My Man Jeeves, then selling the books for $0.25 cents at busy spots like railroad stations and department stores. Before long, the country was hooked on paperbacks. The New York Times said paperbacks were soon flying off the racks. The couple set up Bantam Books in 1945, reprinting American classics such as The Grapes of Wrath. And seven years later, launched Ballantine Books, publishing reprints and originals. Betty edited manuscripts and helped popularize science fiction, commissioning novels from authors who would become the genre's leading lights. Ballantine published Ray Bradbury's dystopian bestseller, Fahrenheit 451, and the works of Arthur C. Clarke. Said Betty, science fiction matters because it's of the mind. It predicts. It thinks. And Mr. Mimlin, as long as we're plugging previous shows, we should refer our listeners also to the wonderful interviewee we had with Ray Bradbury, available on our website, radioparallax.com. If we'd known about Betty Ballantyne back then, we'd have asked Ray about her. We should also promote the works of some other people we are very fond of on this program, starting with Terry Gross. Yours truly had a chance to see Terry Gross when she was in Sacramento some years back. As I recall, Donna Abadoni of Capital Public Radio helped score some tickets for me. Thank you, Donna. Week after week, Fresh Air delivers some very bright and interesting conversations with people. Last week, Terry had on Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, during which time she talked about how Fox News has become Donald Trump's state TV. We highly recommend Jane Mayer's essay in, I believe, the current edition of The New Yorker, perhaps it was last week. I'm sure you can find it online, where she extends the excellent work she did in her book, Dark Money. She revealed in that interview and in her article that back in 2015, Fox shelved a story during the campaign about hush money paid to porn star Stormy Daniels. When a reporter pressed for an explanation, a Fox executive explained that their boss, Rupert Murdoch, wants Donald Trump to win, so just let it go. Now that he's in office, Trump has worked to return the favor, allegedly directing his top aides in 2017 to pressure the Justice Department to block a merger between AT&T and Time Warner, which owns Fox competitor CNN. What I find fascinating is that a lot of advertising, a lot of Lobbyists and advertisers, I guess I should say, eye uh, Fox News rather covetously realizing that Trump is watching it day and night. They work therefore extra hard to put items in front of trump's eyes on Fox. An interesting aspect of jane Mayer's work, and, and I think others as well, is that the former news communication director at Fox, Bill Shine, went on to become Trump's communication director. The day after, I believe it was the day after, maybe it was one day after that, that uh, Jane Mayer talked on Fresh Air, the news revealed that Bill Shine was stepping down from his post as communication director. And I thought to myself, could it possibly be that an appearance of an investigative journalist on an NPR station could have led to this? And the answer is, of course not. Bill Shine has stepped down so that he can take charge of the Trump 2020 re-election committee. Mr. Mayer, we ought to really try and get Jane Mayer on the show. Yes, indeed. All right, another guy who's no longer on late-night television but did a wonderful show for so many years was Bob Costas. We want to give an attaboy to Mr. Costas. Isaac Chotner, writing about him in The New Yorker, said that Bob Costas was never willing to stick to sports. Over nearly four decades as the face and voice of NBC Sports, he made his mark by injecting serious commentary about off-the-field issues into his game broadcasts and interviews. But the network got increasingly fidgety about his criticism of the NFL's handling of brain injuries, which led to his recent departure from NBC. Said Costas, the NFL gets to be as high-handed as it wants to be. They get their way on everything. They're a sports juggernaut, an entertainment juggernaut, and in some sense a cultural juggernaut. Back in 2015, NBC wouldn't let Costas deliver an in-game essay about brain injuries plaguing football players. Before last year's Super Bowl, He asked to interview the NFL's KG commissioner, Roger Goodell, about the league's many controversies, players kneeling, brain injuries, domestic violence, franchise relocations, and so on. The league immediately shot it down. Costas attempted to leave NBC and join the Major League Baseball Network, but apparently uh, they don't want him around either. And it appears, sadly, that Bob Costas' 40-year run at the network has hit a point of diminishing returns. By God, sir, we got to go after Bob Costas also. He can say anything he wants, yeah, on Radio Parallax. And since we like to take swings at sports controversies here on this show, we would like to go to bat for Martina Navratilova. Even though Navratilova is an avowed lesbian and longtime champion of gay rights, she got kicked off the board of the LGBT group Athlete Ally for her supposed transphobia in making some comments about male athletes competing as women. I don't have her original remarks here in front of me. I guess she I guess she alluded to the fact that these trans athletes were cheating. She subsequently backed off on that and apologized, saying, all I'm trying to do is make sure girls and women who are born female are competing on as level a playing field as possible within their sport. The Miami Herald said, good for her. You can be in favor of trans rights while still recognizing that there are unique difficulties when it comes to sports. Imagine a retired NBA player who's now a transgender female and dominating in the WNBA. They noted that raising these issues shouldn't be taboo. It looks as though we're going to have to have a conversation on this with the news that last month in Connecticut, two male-to-female transgender high schoolers took first and second place in the girls' 55-meter dash at the state indoor open track championship, crushing the competition. They also placed first and second in last year's 100 meter dash, which the New York Post described as being wildly unfair, adding that whether he identifies as a male or female, the average man is bigger, taller, stronger, and faster than the average woman. Commentator Madeline Kern said, all this is obvious to those with, with eyes that see and minds capable of critical thought, and yet we see tennis great Martina Navratilova being pilloried by social justice warriors for making the same observations in a recent op-ed for the UK's Times. All right, let's lighten things up by doing the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week. Just last week for moving after the median rent for a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco reached a record $3,690. That's about 30% higher than it is in New York City. We'll have more to say about that shortly. But it was, on the other hand, a bad week for defying authority with news that German officials seized and sold the pet dog of a family that owed money in taxes. The officials denied that they also threatened to grab the wheelchair of a family member because such assets, quote, are exempt from being seized as collateral, unlike pets, end quote. Yeah, yeah, you owe thousands of dollars in back taxes. We're going to have to sell Fluffy. Yeah, the wheelchair you can keep. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for people who have to deal with homeowners associations. The news is that a Tennessee woman, and said that her homeowners association is fining her $100 because the heat from the engine of her parked car melted the snow underneath it into an obscene shape. In an email, the HOA attached a photo of a vaguely phallic patch of bare pavement and stated that her Honda had violated a ban on displaying offensive images or slogans. You know, we suspect the car did it on purpose. All right, here's an item that I think is being promoted by insane jackasses. That's all I can figure. There are people out there that want to ban the $100 bill. These are presumably the same people that want us to stop using cash in general so that every single financial transaction that we conduct could then be tracked by someone for perhaps less than angelic purposes. We were advocating on this program, and have advocated for many years, for larger bills. The $500 bill, perhaps the $1,000 bill. They used to be $1,000 bills in circulation. The 500 euro note apparently is now being withdrawn because, well, counterfeiters got to it. Even though the Europeans took extraordinary measures with the euro currency to make it um, counterfeit-proof, evidently enough of them still got through to where this was considered a problem. So, Unfortunately, we're going in the wrong direction over with the euro. You know, in the article about this, I was shocked to realize there apparently were $5,000 bills, too. Uh, That, along with $1,500, were axed in 1969. You know, when people want to step in and mess with your currency, it's just something, something, something's not right. Many years ago, I visited Burma, which has subsequently been officially renamed Myanmar. I still use Burma because I, you know, I'm not sure I like the government that's done all this renaming. They have been a rather funky bunch running that country since World War II. Back in the 1980s, in an effort to promote the Burmese way to socialism and eliminate all sorts of other possible power centers in the country, the junta devalued most of the currency. The 100 chot note, gone. The 50 chot note, no good. Even the 20 chot note was declared invalid. When you went to Burma, you had currency in units of 90, 45, and 15. As far as I know, this was done because a lot of people had currency stuffed in their mattresses that, you know, allowed them to have some freedom and lack of control from the government, which the government did not like. Anyway, we'll continue to follow that story. And speaking of shenanigans involving the government and private individuals, which is frankly a pretty crappy segue... Still, let's talk for two sentences about the fact that the Raiders may be back in the Oakland Coliseum in 2019. Yes, this sad story of the Mark Davis stealing the Raiders again to remove them elsewhere for more money again, and their battle with the Oakland City Council and Alameda County supervisors is just, uh, well, it's just just a terrible merry-go-round. It does appear that uh, the evil leadership of the Oakland Raiders were unable to secure a deal with Levi's Stadium, or AT&T Park. And, I don't know, a pox on both houses. As Mr. McMillan adds, go Niners. Speaking of AT&T and media consolidation, one of our favorite topics, uh, as of this week, AT&T has replaced the longtime heads of HBO and Turner, moving to remold the media empire it acquired in its $85 billion takeover of Time Warner. I don't know about you, dear listener, but I'm a little sorry to see that the Atlanta-based Turner Broadcasting is going to disappear into the annals of history. The plan is they're going to split Turner or absorb it into newly created entities. We do need to return to this topic of corporate mergers in the future, uh, playing off of Tim Wu's talk inside Tech Monopolies, which we reported on on last week's program. There just does not appear to be enough regulation out there of corporate mergers and corporate control. Oh, Uber apparently has been fined for its bad behavior. They're going to have to pay $20 million to settle the state of California's classification suit. California has successfully challenged the company's classification of drivers as independent contractors and not employees, and thus saving them the money they would normally pay for traditional employment. By the way, I have not yet resolved my issue with Lyft mentioned in this program last summer when they left me high and dry, and then added insult to injury by fining me $5, claiming that, well, the driver showed up at 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. Oh, you wanted him at 7 a.m. We'll report on that conversation after it happens. We promise to also continue reporting on this effort in the Bay Area to, uh, well, just have more enlightened people decide how the Bay Area uh, should be managed in the future. I listened to this horse's ass on KQED last week explaining in very patronizing terms why it was we need to get in there and change things around. Why the, the Silicon Valley's brought 600,000 people to the Bay Area to work, and they've only had a fourth of that number of housing starts. He was patiently explaining to the audience that what we need to do is, for example, go along El Camino Real in the peninsula, and of course all these stores that are there, Amazon's going to bankrupt all of them anyway. So what we need to do is put about a quarter of a million people in there in worker housing. But unfortunately, these wealthy communities like Menlo Park and Palo Alto seem to take a dim view of this, which he confidently explained was something we're just going to have to see if we can't work around. And here's some further bloviations from the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, which put an editorial in the East Bay Times to quote, for years, we have been saying that Silicon Valley's booming economy is not sustainable, given our painfully inadequate housing and transportation infrastructure. Data from a new report suggests we have been wrong. The new numbers on housing and commute time from the 2019 Silicon Valley Competitiveness and Innovation Project are not surprising. The median price for a home in Silicon Valley was $1.25 million in 2017, a reality made even starker in light of comparable figures for competitor regions like Austin $296,000. The average valley commute time is 73 minutes more than even the legendary Southern California commute and second only to the New York City region. Their point is that even if we have another dot-com bust, this Great Recession showed us that the downturn won't solve transportation and housing woes. That's because there wasn't a downturn in Silicon Valley. Hello? Well, there was it, the dot-com bust. That's true, and it did slow uh, this rampant growth for a while. But uh, maybe the solution is to p- promote other areas in the country besides the Bay Area that, is, that are capable of having more people live there without building, you know, five-story worker housing structures all over the place. According to the Wall Street Journal, Austin is the hottest job market in the U.S. That's according to a ranking of 53 metro areas with more than a million people. Austin has a 3% unemployment rate and a 3.5% job growth last year. Other top cities include Orlando, which has the nation's fastest job growth rate, 4%, and Seattle, with the highest wage growth at 9.5%. For those of you that think the only problem in the Bay Area is that these terrible NIMBY zoning ordinances that aren't allowing people to go high-rise, well, why don't you just take a side trip over to Manhattan, take a side trip down to Los Angeles, and see if you don't want to reconsider the possibilities that that's the direction we should head, okay? Someone we are mourning the loss of on this program was our aviation correspondent. Yes, we actually had one. The late Vladimir Zarevika was always a fun guy to talk to. And we need him right now because of this news about the Boeing 737 MAX 8, the newest version of the Boeing, uh, having some issues with deadly crashes. Also, the fact that uh, over in Europe, they've decided to stop making the Airbus 380 a plane originally conceived in the late 1990s to conquer Boeing's 747 in size, range, and Instagram-worthy features, like enclosed suites, bartenders, showers, and waterfalls. According to Bloomberg, the A380 may have been a marketer's dream, but it was a logistical nightmare. Airports had to rebuild rebuilt just to handle them, and smaller planes were required to wait longer to take off or land behind one. It's telling that the airlines in the U.S. did not order a single A310. Vlado was a huge fan of Boeing aircraft. We would refer you again to our archives for the wonderful discussion we had with him about how, well, they flew into a hailstorm, bad things happened, but Vlado felt because the Boeing was well-constructed, he made it back in one piece. Several airlines have grounded the Boeing 737, but the three companies with the largest fleets of the MAX 8s, Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, and Air Canada, with 82 of the new planes between them, are continuing to fly them. We need to find out more about this, and we just can't say any more at the moment. Now, we've talked in this program at great length about a certain elected official who uh, seems to think he's a lot smarter than maybe he really is, who has been sort of helped along by some friends in high places, whose personal track record may be a little more dubious than his supporters would like to believe, and, if the truth be told, just may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. But enough about Gavin Newsom. No, actually, that isn't nearly enough about our current new governor here in California. The governor signed a moratorium, an executive order yesterday, creating a moratorium on executions in California. His executive order, regardless of the laws in the state, will withdraw California's new lethal injections protocol and immediately close the execution chamber and San Quentin State Prison. Good news for the 737 murderers on death row, or should I say convicted murderers. Now, I respect the fact that many of you listeners out there are philosophically opposed to the death penalty. I am very sympathetic to your arguments. On the other hand, I believe there is a place for the death penalty in today's world. For example, the case of serial killers. These people are not going to be rehabilitated. In the modern world of CSI, if you've got a DNA match to the semen from numerous rape-slash-murder victims, and you have multiple hits pointing toward the same individual... Well, that person's guilty. And it's my personal opinion, which is not necessarily that of anybody else's, but my personal opinion is that some people have worked so hard to earn the death penalty that it would be criminal to deny it to them. But hey, Gavin Newsom, he's going with his gut on this one. He feels it's wrong. And you know, speaking of leaders that, you know, go with their gut, we just have to laugh. What else can you do over the fact that the Vietnamese peace negotiations, alleged Peace, denuclearization, whatever you want to call it, negotiations between Kim Jong un and Donald Trump evidently failed because the two sides before meeting had not even agreed on the definition of the key word under their discussion, denuclearization. Even before they sat down to negotiate, the White House had scheduled a signing ceremony for a quote, joint agreement, unquote, fueling talk of a breakthrough that might involve a declaration of peace and economic infusion of North Korea in exchange for a reduction in its nuclear ambitions according to Jeffrey Tubin, But it soon became clear the joint agreement was a hollow promise. There was, in fact, no deal. We also had to laugh over the fact that in the wake of Michael Cohn's devastatingly exact testimony before Congress about his work for President Trump, a couple of Republican congressmen sprang into action and asked the Justice Department to investigate Michael Cohn because he said in his testimony he had not sought employment with Trump. It just sort of happened. But there's some evidence that he really did. These guys clearly have their priorities straight. Just to return to Gavin Newsom for a moment, Dan Walders appears to not be a fan, noting that Gavin Newsom blamed the press for its reporting of his backing away from the statewide bullet train that Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jerry Brown had championed. In his inaugural address, Newsom praised their ambitious vision but added, let's be real, the project as currently planned would cost too much and take too long. Given those words, Said Dan Walters, the natural conclusion in the media, including his column, was that Newsom was severely downgrading the project that seemed to have serious existential issues. Those reports prompted Trump to crow on Twitter. California has been forced to cancel the massive bullet train project after having spent and wasted many billions of dollars. They owe the federal government $3.5 billion. We want that money back. Newsom then blamed the media for this idea that he was backing off on the bullet train. He said, I just think people in the media should pause before they run headlines and actually consider the facts, and maybe even ask the person that's stating things before they run with things. Newsom told the LA Times, that's the deep lesson I learned in this. Walter says that's earned Newsom a new nickname in Sacramento, Governor Gaslight. Gaslight is a phrase currently in vogue, which is an 1838 British play set in the 1880s about a man who manipulates his wife into believing she is going insane to suppress her suspicions about crimes he is committing. This term has been used in reference to President Trump. And, well, maybe it has more than one application these days. Walters is also surprisingly siding with Trump in their administration's argument that they should not have to pay millions of dollars, at least $306 million of the $1.1 billion cost of responding to the near failure of the Oroville Dam two years ago. State of California applied to the federal government for reimbursement for as much as 75% of the costs of repairing the dam arguing that it was a weather-caused emergency much like a hurricane or tornado. Dan Walters points out that's a weak argument to begin with because it was apparent the state had failed to fix defects in the main spillway when they first appeared and had rejected suggestions from outside groups that the auxiliary dam be armored to protect the dam from erosion. We reported two years ago that we had been given inside information that if that emergency spillway was used, there were going to be big problems. And in fact, when they did use that so-called auxiliary opening, which is just a low place in the dam and poured water onto a dirt and rock face of the earth-filled dam, massive erosion resulted and threatened the structural integrity of the entire dam, leading, as you recall, to the evacuation of 200,000 people from the Marysville-Yuba City area. You know, for all this talk about building more housing, building more roads, building more infrastructure, you've got to take care of what you have. Yes, it costs money, and yes, it's not as exciting as building something new, but a failure of the highest earthen dam in America would be, well, it would be a problem. We, we do need to fix it properly. We also need a quote from an excellent Sacramento News and Review piece by Scott Thomas Anderson about what is happening when eminent domain is swung into action to, uh, to take property from people for projects done in the public interest. I should say that in quotes. Gavin Newsom announced couple months back that he is not in favor of the Twin Tunnels program to divert Sacramento River Water South. He only wants to build one tunnel. The utter stupidity of all of this is made fairly clear in this piece in the News and Review, but we don't have time to go into it right now, so we'll have to defer that to next week's show. But before we leave the topic of water shenanigans in California and the so-called Bay Delta Conservation Program, which is going to improve, improve the ecology of California's Delta by removing water from it. Well, I I thought of that when I read this in The Economist. It's an addendum to a piece they had on palm oil plantations, which is currently wreaking ecological havoc throughout the tropics. In a sidebar piece, the economist notes that few creatures can live comfortably on oil palm plantations. The orderly rows of trees provide scant refuge for mammals trying to avoid predators and hunters. Monkeys struggle to swing on palm branches. Birds have few places to nest. But for snakes, the plantations are an earthly paradise. Snakes flourish because they have an abundant source of food. They feast on the swarms of rats that are attracted to the plantations by the energy-packed palm kernels. The International Union for Conservation of Nature notes that at least eight snake species thrive in oil palm plantations. They're often more prevalent there than in neighboring jungles. Here's the part I like. On a plantation belonging to Cargill in South Sumatra, the medical center is stocked with antivenoms. A poster on the wall depicts several species of snakes to help patients identify their attackers. Signs warning about pythons are dotted among the rows of oil palms. Workers are encouraged to wear thick gloves to reduce the risks of bites. Across Indonesia, media outlets routinely report stories of oil palm harvesters being gobbled up by enormous pythons. Boy, well, you think you got a tough job. But here's the spin that I like on it. This must have been the same guy that you know, put together the promotion for the... California Delta Project. Magazine notes the snakes can also be a boon for oil palm workers who tend to be poorly paid. Snake skins can fetch 30 to $60 a piece, roughly a week's wages. Many are shipped to Europe to become fashionable belts or handbags. Another moneymaker is to milk poisonous snakes and sell the venom. So you see, if you think about it, there's a lot of advantages to oil palm plantations. In some ways, they're helping the lives of workers, at least the ones not swallowed by pythons. All right, let's take a break and talk about the periodic table. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.